This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, The Playbook, and the author is Emil Manera, and Emil joins us now on iUniverse Radio, and Emil likes to be called Mo, so welcome, Mo. Thank you, Steve. Well, this is a very, very different, thought-provoking, 167 pages, as you put it, of brave writing. So tell us a little bit about the book in general. We'll go into details more and why you wrote it. Well, I wrote the book. It goes back to uh, when I was in the Marine Corps. I was an officer in the Marine Corps, so I found myself counseling my Marines. And then later on, I became a DEA agent. And, uh, and, and I counseled my agents, and then 14 years of my 20 years as a DEA agent, I was uh, in a protected status as an undercover agent, and I found myself counseling the criminal element. And they all had basically the same problems, women. Uh, and they all got manipulated, used, fooled. Consequently, they lost money, their self-esteem. And, uh, and I felt it was my responsibility along the way uh, to give counsel. And I was very, very successful at that. I did give information that did work out for them, and that's how I was dubbed the, the hoodlum shrink. <laughs> the hoodlum shrink. <laughs> well, you're very, very strong in your feelings about this. Uh, you write that... You are out to save as many men, young and old alike, from those disturbingly beautiful ladies who are out to fool us and use us. There's no question about it. You, you know, you take a look at those pretty ladies, uh, pretty face, pretty feet. You got to wonder, are they out for a, a love check or are they looking for a paycheck? And, and that's, that's the problem. Uh, a lot of us guys have become professionals at, uh, at not accepting the truth. You've got to understand that the investment that we, we make in them, what are we getting back? What do they give back to the relationship? Oftentimes, it's, it's unbalanced. And, and guys, they don't take stock. They don't step back. They don't realize that they're being used. And, and that's why the playbook, with these maxims, it illustrates quickly the signals that you should be looking for to see if you're a mark. Very, very simple. You say that women are smarter than men, and they know men are basically clueless and ill-equipped and unprepared to deal with their as you put it, iron curtain of secrecy. Those are pretty strong words. Absolutely. And, and, the, and, and women, they have the ability to identify a needy man at 50 meters. And, and, and 
I'm, I'm not joking here. They know that we need them. They know that we will do anything to have a pretty lady on our arm. And, and that is a shortfall. They know it, and they use it. So are you saying you really can't trust a pretty woman at all? You, you, you trust them, but along the way, you watch, you confirm, you ask the right questions. Does she think in long-term uh, a mindset? Is she willing to discuss those, those subject matters that most long-term couples talk about? Does she discuss investment philosophy? Does she have uh, an income? Is she willing to discuss those things that we men need to discuss with a long-term couple? If she does not, you've got to understand she's not in it for the long haul. You're investing in someone that's not on the same page. You're going to lose, plain and simple. Now, your book is 167 pages long, and as you put it, brave writing, and on each page you have a statement that uh, is really to create a lot of thinking and to prove a point? Absolutely. If, if you read page 67, it doesn't matter what page you read. If you see on that page something that you find in your relationship, you should attempt to discuss these maxims with your partner. And if she refuses to discuss it, if every conversation you have with her involves an argument, run. Bottom line, run, Steve. Well, we're going to read a few of those and have you react to why you wrote what you did. For example, on the very first page, it says... Aunt Grace was right. Treat them rough and tell them nothing. I learned a lot from Aunt Grace. She was about 90-some-odd years old when I met her, and she buried five husbands. And uh, having dinner with her, she told me uh, all about life, all about men. Um, and she, <laughs> she told me that women are smarter than men, far more cunning than men. You've got to be on guard. you got to do your homework. And this was a, a gal who gave me sage advice. Uh, I, I took a lot of uh, lessons from her. It's true. You know, you and I, Steve, we don't have to tell them everything. Very simple. How do you do your homework? Well, without, I, I would, without seeming like you're interrogating it comes up in natural conversation. You're dating a gal. It would be natural for you to ask about her career path. Has she ever been engaged? Is she willing to talk about it? Has she ever been divorced? How many abortions did she have? Does she have any tattoos? Where would she like to leave? Where is she going to be five years from now? If she balks on these simple questions, you know you got a problem. you this is part of learning about someone. And most guys, they try, and then I have found that a lot of women, they don't want to talk about it. There's a reason for that. Here's another one. Stop crying, you fool. Tears won't turn into roses. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, how many of us uh, were in a relationship and it failed, and what do we do? We get back on the phone, we take them back. Uh, we're not fools for caring, we're fools for taking them back, and they know it. They, they know we'll be back, they know we'll be on our knees, they know we'll give them whatever they want, and they know that we're needy. And uh, you got to understand, they don't care. They have backup, I call it. Temporary dalliances. They all have temporary dalliances. They all got backup. You don't think that you love her the best. Don't you think that you were the first? Don't be foolish. This is the real world. When you start making those kinds of dreamy like assumptions, you're gonna you're gonna end up on the on the uh, the downside. You're gonna lose. Here's two words. Sameness kills. Absolutely. Women, they love the fun guy. They're attracted to a good time. The minute things become a little slow, a little routine, they're going to start looking elsewhere. you got to understand, pretty women with pretty feet gravitate to a good time and a guy who can give it. Tolerating well is not living well. Yeah, most guys, uh, they, make, they make up excuses. And, uh, and, and for that, they live a life with this particular gal, and they give, 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 and they get nothing back. And that's because they tolerate being treated that way. And we're talking about alpha males now. I mean, they're on top of their game. What's an alpha male? An alpha male is at the top of the food chain. They come in, they look around, they take what they want. So they have that kind of uh, attraction to a woman? Absolutely. And, and being an alpha male doesn't mean uh, that you're not susceptible to their cunning ways. Unfortunately, alpha males and most males don't understand that they're being manipulated. You call your book a book of survival or for survival, don't you? Absolutely, because along the way, you know, I've, I've run into so many guys on the top of the food chain, but they were all fooled by that pretty face. And, and somewhere along the line, they lost money, or they lost cars, or they lost real vital time with this particular gal that they had invested in, and they wanted a future in. And they wake up one day, and they find out, She's gone. She's moved on. And he never saw the signals. Why? Wasn't watching. He was conned. Let's put it that way. And I'm not saying all women are like that. I'm going to say at least 8 out of 10 are playing that game. So 20% you feel that uh, men can trust? You can trust when you do your homework. And uh, you can trust, but you better verify the shine went away. <laughs> yeah, I also say love dies by the inch. You know, a relationship doesn't die overnight. It's over time, a gradual, uh, a gradual decay of the relationship. Um, you know how it is when you first meet a gal and then you're dating, you're having fun, and you're looking at each other straight in the eyes. She's holding your hand. She doesn't walk in front of you. She's with you, and then pretty soon it just, 
it goes away, and then she's walking ahead of you, and all of a sudden you're walking too slow, or all of a sudden she's not interested in going out, or you ask her a question, where would you like to go for dinner tonight? I don't care. That's not an answer. Uh, what would you like to eat tonight? I don't care. That's not an answer. And, and, and unfortunately, that's the way the relationships go. So be it. But when you see that, time to end it. I say, time to run. Here's another one. There is nothing wrong with a table for one. Absolutely. Um, it's because we men are so darn needy that we'll do anything to be with a gal, even if it means being manipulated, even if it means losing assets and time. And we, we all want to be seen with this beautiful young lady. And uh, unfortunately, it, it, it's so sad. And I want men to know, there's nothing wrong with, with going to the movies with yourself. There's nothing wrong with having dinner with yourself. You're very important. You should know that. You don't need a woman to validate you. Very simple. Do men know by instinct that they have more needs than a woman, or does a woman have as many needs as, as a man? I mean, is, there, is, there, is this an equal thing, or are men just needier? Oh, in my, in my, in my history of counseling men in there's no question in my, ma- my mind, men are far more needier, and they exhibit that, that quality all too much. And that's why, you know, 8 out of 10, they see this, and they capitalize on it. So they become the victim. Uh, victim, target, willing participant, fool. Unfortunately, we can't live with them, and we can't live without them, and they know this too. Absolutely, and that's why I wrote the playbook. You read the playbook, you look at those maxims, you watch for those nuances in your, your woman of choice, and, and hopefully your time with these beautiful, disturbing, disturbingly beautiful women Will, will work out in your favor, and you will select, and you'll be a partnership in partnership with someone who gives back as much as you give them. And that's, that's the whole idea, is finding a partner who's willing to give back to the relationship. And when it's not that way, end it. I call it run. You run from it. As you look back, you can see, or you can now see, that every step of the way with her was the wrong way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, after a relationship is over with, we all have this tendency to look back and figure out how it started. And then you start tabulating how it all went wrong after the fact. It's too late. <laughs> You're behind. So what you do is you try and learn from your previous mistakes. That's life. Life demands hard work and Life demands making hard decisions and a little luck. And most of us men, we have been successful. Why don't we take all those professional dictums and apply it to our dating relationships? Why not? We have to be reminded that you have to do that. 
I guess this one goes along with what you're saying. Some fool told me a relationship without pain is a relationship not worth having. You know, it, it shouldn't. A relationship with a with with your partner shouldn't be difficult. It's a partnership. It's only when you're you're not getting back what you give that it becomes drudgery, and and you got to realize that got to be a gunslinger. you got to accept reality. And w- when you realize it and you can't correct it, you run. What are some closing thoughts, Mo? Give us some closing thoughts about your book. Well, I, I, just, I just hope that uh, the playbook, which is brutal, revealing, and unfortunately sad, can forewarn a lot of young guys, young guys, not so old guys, that uh, you should have fun. You should be in a relationship with someone who wants to be there with you for the right reason. You know, I got a phone call not too long ago, Steve. I was dating this incredible young lady, a financial analyst, very professional, uh, just a lovely young lady, and we went everywhere and had fun and then I get a phone call from her and she says to me uh, you know I think it's about time you start spending a little bit more money on me (laughs) I says to her you know uh, in life uh, what's really important is who you're with not what you're doing not how much money you're spending not what you're drinking and not what you're eating so I think it's best that this relationship end right now and, and having said that, Steve, that's, that's what I want men to realize. You're not a paycheck. You're in it for a love check. And if you're lucky, and if you do your homework, you're going to bump into someone who's on the same page. How's that? Mo, tell us how to get your book. Uh, you, can, you can call iUniverse, 1-800-AUTHORS. And you ask for uh, the playbook by Emil Mo Manara, and they'll ship it to you. And I'm sure you can probably get it online and order it from any of the online bookstores. Oh, yes. You just Google the playbook and then type in my name, Emil Manara, or Emil Mo Manara, and it'll pop up and you can order it right there. Well, we appreciate you being on iUniverse Radio. Steve, thanks for having me. That was Emil Manara. He is the author of his book, The Playbook. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. East Texas Meals on Wheels needs your help. For the first time in 35 years, Meals on Wheels has a waiting list for meals. Currently, we serve more than 3,500 meals per day. With the help of donors and volunteers, we can eliminate the waiting list and serve more meals and ensure all who need a hot, nutritious meal are served. You can call our offices toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 to find out more about how you can help. You can also visit our website at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. Again, toll-free at 1-800-451-2912 or visit us on the web at www.mealsonwheelseasttexas.org. After all, when a person needs a meal, they need it today, not tomorrow. Thank you for helping Meals on Wheels. 
Saturdays on toginap.com. It's Author Talk. Get the story behind the story on fiction and literature, graphic novels, horror, mystery and crime novels, romance, science fiction and fantasy, westerns, history, humor, inspiration, and every genre. It's all on Author Talk. You'll get to hear new authors talk about their books. Take the opportunity to hear insights on what inspired them to write it. It's called Author Talk on Toginet.com. And it's presented by Author House, the leading provider of services to help authors publish, promote, and sell their book around the world. Author House has assisted more than 30,000 authors, producing over 40,000 titles. Author Talk with host Steve Jorgensen every Saturday on Toginet.com. Radio with a cutting edge. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Wildest Dreams, and the author is Beverly LeVere, and Beverly joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Beverly. Hi, how are you? Well, Wildest Dreams, we're going to talk about some uh, different characters throughout the book uh, later, but in general, kind of give us uh, an overview of how you would, you know, explain what the book is about in uh, in a in a few sentences, and then why you wrote it. Okay, the book is about, it's a book of short stories, and it's about dreams. Uh, I would call it um, fictional life experiences, once kept behind doors until now. So fantasies. Yes. And, and uh, dreams that uh, a lot of people have, but sometimes they don't, they don't talk about. Sometimes, yes, exactly. Um, it doesn't mean that uh, there are dreams that could uh, it could be daydreams, or sometimes you uh, maybe in the middle of a sentence and you lose uh, track of where you are because something can be almost like a deja vu. Sometimes the dreams can be like that, or you have dreams that last more than one day or one night, or where you uh, maybe sleeping, get up, get a glass of water or whatever, come back to the same dream. That's the type of dreams are, that are in this book. Now, you've gone through some very, very challenging things. Tell us about uh, what you have experienced and where you are right now. Okay. Uh, I was diagnosed with a, a rare eye disease called retinitis pigmentosa, commonly known as RP. And How long ago was that? Back in, in the middle of 1985, 80, no, 1983. And first they diagnosed me with uveitis, which I'm glad that they, that was false. Uh, and they put me on steroids for three and a half years, and then they said, oops, like we made a mistake, and then they didn't know what else to do. So they sent me to John Hopkins, and in a matter of a day, they told me I had RP, but unfortunately, there isn't a cure for it, and it deals with the, it's a disease of the retina, and where it's almost like a shutter on a camera where the light comes in. Um, mine uh, doesn't, well, in my case, the light doesn't always come through the shutter. 
and you start losing your peripheral view, and eventually you uh, it narrows down to nothing, which I'm hoping that it doesn't get there. But it's um, since the year been in, uh, it's been diminishing more and more. So you can see. I can see, but I can't read the print. Okay. And I can't tell you what color your eyes are if you're in front of me. All right. All right. So obviously, uh, you've had to learn to accept this and move on with your life. And and what motivated you again? Was it was part of what you were going through? Part of your motivation to write this book? Pretty much, yes. Because I I thought why well, I, I was. Didn't want to believe. I was in denial, and um, life as I once knew it no longer existed. I didn't know what else to do, and I attended. Um, I was a student at the Center for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Chester, Pennsylvania, and I, I was taught how to um, use accessible technology for the blind. And um, when, like I said, I thought life was over. Because I designed clothes, I was a special event planner, I traveled exclusively, world travel, and I didn't know what to do. I thought my life was over. I was on the edge. And um, then a light came on in my head and said, uh, it reminded me of a a childhood um, hobby or happiness of storytelling. And that made me say, okay, I can do something, and let me try that again. And that's how it started. I started writing these stories and, and, and um, letting friends read the stories and uh, whatever, and they said, you should put this in a book or you should do something about it. And I said, oh, whatever. And so I took their advice, and I did. I never thought that I would get a book published, but I did. Now, these fantasies, these dreams, uh, have a sexual twist to them. Yes. Uh, why, why did you do that? Um, okay, this is a PG. <laughs> I don't know. I think that was on my mind a lot. I thought socially, well, actually, um, they said that when you lose uh, one sense, the others get stronger. So my imagination became stronger, I guess. I'm putting it that way. Okay. And I was more open-minded about things. And I met um, a lot of people that I thought I would never meet, uh, that blind people or disabled people. And just I had more time to listen. And a lot of times, uh, seemed like all my life, people always called me for help, I guess, uh, uh, to give them answers to their questions and what did I think about this, how did I feel about that. And um, so I heard a lot of things from people. So I just took um, all that in my mind. I just came up with things, that's all. Nothing specific, you know what I mean? It just happened to be sexual. So we we have, let's see, we have, what, nine different... Uh, chapters with pretty much uh, nine different stories about people with different kinds of dreams and fantasies. Exactly. Uh, so let's talk about 
uh, Kevin. Now, obviously, we're not going to give away everything in any of these uh, explanations of these different characters. People are going to have to buy the book to uh, get the complete story. But tell us why you created this Kevin character. Okay. How Kevin came about. I happened, this was the first day that I ever used my cane um, totally. I think it was, it had snowed the night before, and I was going to see visit my sister in the hospital. And um, I was a little nervous. It was on a Sunday. While I was standing there, um, I started thinking, and that's what happens to me. Uh, a whole lot of things come to mind as I'm standing or somewhere, and um, this, I was thinking about, okay, everything that you see in the book, read in the book, uh, in that story for Kevin, it was going through my mind, and, and I said, okay, whenever this bus comes, uh, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start writing what's in my head right now. And so that's how that came about. And it's, Kevin is about a transportation um, lover man, a lover boy, whatever. And he thought he was the coolest guy around, and there was no woman that he could not date or couldn't get to date him. And... He had a lot of fantasies, and one in particular, and that day he got the fantasies of his life, something that he never expected. Yeah, this one has a real big twist to it, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> and well, I don't want to give it away. No, we're not going to. <laughs> but it's something uh, that the readers, uh, people who have told me that they loved it and they couldn't... They thought they misunderstood what I wrote, and they had to go back and read it again and again and again. So that's how good it is. Well, the next chapter is named Brittany. Brittany. Tell us about Brittany. Well, I thought, of, uh, well, at the time I wrote that Brittany Spears was going through her changes. I'm sure everybody knows about Brittany Spears. So that's why I chose the name Brittany. And um, it's pretty is about uh, a young woman who had a, led a sheltered life, kind of, uh, didn't get out that much. She was a workaholic. Or she, in her mind, or she thought about doing a lot of things or experiencing a lot of things, but she never did. And she met uh, one of her coworkers, uh, a beautiful woman, and had a lot of friends, and she had a nice-looking, um, handsome brother who always seemed to get to speak to Brittany when he called there for his sister. And um, her co-worker had a party. Really, she had this party just to introduce Brittany to her friends and uh, another way of thinking and um, another way of socializing. And so Brittany, another person who uh, fantasized about things and never experienced it, she got her chance to fulfill her fantasy and a life experience. Well, this chapter, I'm not quite sure how we're going to talk about it, but this will be <laughs> your challenge. It says, how to keep your mind in the gutter. Okay. The reason I wrote that is because when you talk to people, 
and you talk about sexual things or um, what you're pretty explicit or just opened. And um, you and the people that you're talking to, they're the ones that usually are in the gutter or have, they're doing the things that they people would consider being in the gutter. But I look at um, sex or especially between two consult, uh, consenting adults, it's not gutter. I, uh, people will say to me, oh, your mind is always in the gutter. Not what I do, not what I think, and not what I say. Is it dirty? So that's why I said how to keep your mind in the gutter and like it. And it's the, really, it's just um, the, what I wrote in that particular story. It's, not, it's just certain things that you can do to tantalize each other, your couple, a couple, and to make um, lovemaking or relationships um, better than usual, not just your, um, okay, um, come home from work and what did you do today, that type of thing. You should keep in a romance, you should keep romance in a relationship, I feel, and that. How to keep your mind in the gutter and like it is pretty much what that whole story is about. It's, uh, but I think it's about three stories in one or three. It's, uh, I think that's what they call the nonfiction story in the book. It's like eight fictional and not one nonfiction. And I think that because this is something, it wasn't a dream. It's just something that you could do with your mate, if you understand what I'm trying to say without me giving it away. All right. Well, let's also talk about sugar sea cane. Sugar cane. Sugar cane. He had been married and um, was, had filed for divorce. And she met someone uh, that she hadn't seen. Oh, she, well, a friend of hers, he found out that he was a brother to someone knew, that knew her when she was a child. In other words, he was, um, uh, I would say, about 15 years older. He grew up with her older sibling. And he was um, a rich man, um, self-employed, uh, kind of, uh, he flaunted his wealth, let's put it that way. But he was very nice to Sugar. I, she remembered when she was a kid that he always um, would, whatever her family needed, that they, he would be there for them. Because they, you know what I mean? They grew up poor, but he became wealthy. And he reminded her of that. And one thing led to another. He tried to prove to her. He said one thing to her, or and she had a, a defensive wall up around her, especially after the divorce, and uh, he wanted to prove to her that all men aren't the same, and that he, especially him, and that when he, he was true to his word, and he proved it to her in every way. Well, we also have, uh, following the, the remaining chapters, we have Tony and Vincent and you and me and he and Chloe. And then this one says, The One That Got Away. Let's finish, conclude our talk about your book with The One That Got Away. <laughs> you have about a minute. Okay. 
one who got away is about a young woman who um, she was really a lesbian, and I think I said in there she she was not she wasn't like um, butchy or anything, but she really wasn't that feminine either. Very attractive. She had been married, but uh, she always had a friend. This um, that they grew up together. They used to double date when she was into men, or she thought she was into men. But she always had this funny feeling about this this um, friend of hers, who was a naive. The character in that is very naive. Was very naive and uh, had a, a religious background. So she always wanted to tell her, but she never knew how. And then she finally, um, they had separated a party. They hadn't seen each other in quite a, some time. And when they did meet up again, she told the naive character, who which was no longer naive, uh, but she didn't know it, uh, how, her feelings for her all those years when they were teenagers and they were... Uh, early young adult, and um, he thought that the naive, once upon a time naive character uh, would not accept her. And the story goes the whole, um, before it got to that, with their reunion, uh, a whole, it tells about uh, the, the character, the naive character, and uh, the lesbian. And then it goes into when they had their reunion, and the um, lesbian wrote her a story about what she wanted um, from the girl and that she did not have to be her friend any longer if she felt like she couldn't deal with the girl's personality and what she was about. And I'm not going to say any more about that. Well, Beverly... Tell us how to get your book, The Wildest Dreams. Well, you can go on my web page, which is www.beverly at beverlylevere.com, or you can get it on Amazon or um, barnesandnoble.com, and you can go to iuniverse.com and purchase the book. Well, we appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. And it's been my pleasure, and I'm so grateful for you to have me on your show. That was Beverly LeVere. She is the author of her book, The Wildest Dreams. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. He's a diehard American. He's right, and he has the last name to prove it. He's Jason Wright, the host of The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet Radio. Jason is a father and self-made entrepreneur who turned a struggling East Texas real estate firm into a top-notch million-dollar company. Jason Wright loves America and is very concerned about where we are headed as a nation. He's dedicated to traditional American values. Jason Wright. Join us every Friday at 11 a.m. Eastern for The Right Side of the Aisle on TogiNet.com. Maybe if I write a book, it will be the thing that keeps me alive. Those are the troubled words of a new 16-year-old author with her first thought-provoking book, What Gives? Published by Togi Entertainment. The author kept a diary during her dark teenage times, which turned into a 360-page suicide note with a happy ending. Texas Monthly describes teen author Chelsea Marie and her new book, What Gives? in this provocative way. We've plunged from page to page, not because of the young diarist's despondency, 
Depression is not especially attractive or compelling, but because we are fascinated to see that while she is fending off demons on one hand, she is writing verse with the other. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Readers of What Gives are giving rave reviews. All social scientists, teachers, and students should use this book as a learning tool. What Gives is available at whatgivesbook.com and national bookstores. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Surviving Chadwick, and the author is Philip Wilhite, and Philip joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Philip. Hello, Steve. How are you? Now, this book, tell us, give us a little general uh, outline of the book, uh, and we'll go into the details later, but just a little bit of the theme of the book and why you wrote it. Okay. Well, Surviving Chadwick tells a story of a young African-American male from Oakland, California, uh, gets a scholarship to an elite, uh, predominantly white boarding school in Ojai, and the story tells of his struggle to adjust to a totally new environment uh, from Oakland. And pretty much uh, the, the story, uh, I wrote the story uh, because uh, I was awarded a scholarship myself uh, through a program called the Better Chance to attend a boarding school, and you know my parents wanted me to attend a uh, a good public school, um, and so I passed a, you know an entrance exam and all the rest of that, and I begged them to uh, to let me attend. Um, when I finally got there, uh, hated every single moment of it, um, and so this story, the genesis of it. I wanted to write about my boarding school experience to show others what it was like uh, for one kid uh, to just feel this sense of alienation at an elite school. Uh, and later, uh, when I read other novels uh, about other African-American students uh, at boarding schools, uh, none of them seemed to really capture my experience. So I wanted to tell that story. Now, this, is, this occurs when? Uh, the story itself occurs... Uh, in the 1970s, uh, sort of uh, 1973 to about 1975, uh, but the character itself is looking back on his experience. So it actually occurs uh, much later uh, because he's on his way back to a uh, class reunion. What about the experience didn't you like or you hated? Well, I think uh, for me it was just uh, very different. Um, it was totally uh, out of the realm of uh, what I was used to. Um, you know, I was away from my friends. I was away from family for the first time. I was only 15 years old. Um, and, you know, I came from a school where there were primarily African-American uh, and other minority kids, and then all of a sudden I was thrust into a school where there were very wealthy kids, um, and I really didn't know how to react. Um, and so that was a very big learning experience for me. How were you treated? Um, actually, I was, I was uh, treated very well, although I was treated as somewhat of a novelty. 
Um, the, uh, you know, most of the kids were not used to having uh, other African-American students. And so for me, I got a lot of questions about, um, you know, my hair, uh, uh, you know, playing basketball, um, just, you know, things which, uh, you know, just I took for granted as a student in Oakland. Were you the only one there, the only African-American? There were other students in the ABC program who were already there, uh, and so they uh, assisted me somewhat in my own uh, development and adjustment to, uh, to the school. Um, ABC does a, does a very good job of uh, orientating uh, you know, students to uh, boarding schools, and so before I attended, uh, I attended a, an orientation program, but there were other students there that, that helped in the transition. Uh, but still, um, I had to, to find my own way, and that was uh, part of, uh, you know, my own struggle in adjusting to the situation. And ABC is a better chance. Yeah, ABC is a better chance. That's where you got your scholarship to attend this uh, yeah. boarding yeah. school, Chadwick. In the small community of Ojai, California? Yeah, the school was in Ojai, California, and obviously uh, that was my real experience. The novel itself, of course, uh, does take place in Ojai, but but the school uh, is Chadwick, uh, which, you know, was a fictionalized account of my experience there, Uh, some of which is, uh, you know, partly true. The other part, obviously, is, uh, you know, just the, the... I wanted to capture the emotional uh, trauma of uh, of the main character as he enters this, you know, elite, uh, predominantly white boarding school in the 70s. And this was a period of affirmative action. So um, during that period, um, you know, we had a lot of students, and there was a big push right after uh, the Civil Rights Movement to get more uh, African-American students uh, into uh boarding school and different environments to give, you know, uh, a better opportunity for success. Now, the character's name, tell us about your main character. Okay. Uh, The main character is Isaiah Isaacson, Um, and he is a uh, kind of a very radical kid, uh, very tall, uh, talented. He's a basketball player, and he... uh, is missing home. Um, you know, he wants to play on his high school basketball team uh, with his friend, um, and so part of his uh, his struggle really is to uh, not only adjust to uh, the boarding school experience, but to uh, come to a realization that um, his basketball is not going to be uh, as competitive as it was when he was back in Oakland. So he's concerned that he's not going to get a scholarship, and this uh, troubles him also as he's adjusting to his new environment. Now, you say that this uh, happened uh, during this era of community activism. You also mentioned the Black Panther Party. Is there something in the book concerning the Black Panther Party? Yes. Um, the uh, Early in the book... Um, um, Isaiah goes to his uh, first Black Panther rally, which is uh, uh, which is in his neighborhood. There's a there's a park in Oakland called the Fermery Park, and that was the site of a lot of the uh, 
uh, a lot of the rallies that the Black Panther Party participated in in the 1970s. And Isaiah grows up in this West Oakland neighborhood uh, where a lot of uh, the activism uh, took place. There were a lot of speeches that were given at this park. Um, and he's deeply touched by this as he makes his move to, uh, to Ojai. And so uh, he's torn a little bit by the philosophy of the Black Panther Party. Uh, and also, uh, once he gets to Ojai, um, he is sort of missing that, uh, that uh, activism and that struggle. Um, at that time, um, the, the uh, Black Panther Party is running a candidate for uh, mayor of the city of Oakland. Um, and so his best friend is at home, and he's trying to give him uh, kind of updates on the situation. So um, Isaiah is, uh, like I said, he's torn between um, his love for the Black Panther Party, but also trying to integrate himself into uh, the Ojai uh, atmosphere. Now you, you have you have him in this new elitist environment. Now, does he make uh, any friends there? Does he have any close allies at the school? Yes, he does. Um, he has a a, a roommate um, who he starts out with, um, and they start out a very rocky relationship. Um, his uh, his first day on the campus. Uh, he gets there, and his roommate's very surprised that he has a black roommate. Um, and um, but later on, they actually develop a very good, uh, a very good working relationship. Uh, and um, he becomes uh, an ally. He helps him uh, somewhat. Um, and I think uh, um, there are also other students there. Uh, uh, other African-American students who also uh, help him along this path. Now, is this philosophy that he uh, adheres to uh, with the influence of the Black Panthers, does that affect his relationship with uh, people at the school? Does it cause for friction? For uh, Does he develop any enemies? Um, yeah, he does. He actually uh, develops enemies with his, uh, with his teachers. I think... Uh, the main thing uh, is that he is a student who wants to see more representation of African Americans in the classroom, in the curriculum, um, and he pushes for that. And so in the beginning, he's uh, not as enthusiastic about uh, some of the things that he has to learn um, and uh, some of the books he has to read. Uh, you know, he has to read... Uh, the normal uh, books that you read as a high school kid, which uh, The Great Gatsby and Huckleberry Finn, uh, and a lot of those uh, normal titles that you read. But um, Isaiah wants to read more African American literature. He's been in a classroom environment where he's, you know, he's read Langston Hughes, he's read uh, Invisible Man, he's read some of these other books, and he's been exposed to them. And so he feels as though he wants some of the other students at the school to experience it. Now, you also mentioned in uh, just in talking about your, uh, in general, about the book that you talk about the Jackson 5. Now, how does, does the Jackson 5 play any part in this? Yes. Um, the, uh, one of the characters in the book 
that he meets early on in the story is a another female student who is uh, also part of the uh, ABC or um, in this in this case uh, uh, part of the Rising Star program. They've all they've both been accepted into a scholarship program, and um, Isaiah falls in love with. Uh, this female student, and uh, one of the things that the female student, uh, uh, she is a very uh, enthusiastic lover of Michael Jackson's music, and this is uh, is both an attraction and a little repellent to Isaiah, um, but I think it's very uh, apropos for the time because um, at that time, uh, the Jackson Five uh, and Michael Jackson uh, were becoming very popular, um, and um, this was an early time uh, when uh, you know their songs ABC and other songs uh, were starting to really uh, resonate, particularly with uh, you know kids in the African American community, and so it was not uncommon. For uh, you know, female students to really fall in love with the Jackson Five, and so uh, they do play a, a very prominent role in the story uh, in terms of um, Isaiah and also the other characters uh, who uh, follow the music, uh, not only of the Jackson Five but other uh, you know other music in the '70s, such as uh, Sly and the Family Stone and. Uh, the uh, the OJs and, and other uh, R and B type music. Now, there's another character named Richard. How? What kind of a relationship does he have with Isaiah? Um, Richard um, is a uh, is an African American student, um, and he actually uh, has a totally different uh, attitude about uh, the school and about his adjustment to uh, Chadwick. And Richard is also uh, a kid from Oakland. He's also been awarded a, a scholarship to uh, Chadwick, and he uh, is really trying to make it through the school no matter what. Um, and I think um, um, their relationship uh, ends up being very uh, rocky, and I think it tests Isaiah a lot. Throughout the story, because um, he puts a lot of Isaiah's theories and ideas about surviving Chadwick to the test, and whereas Isaiah is uh, very reluctant to accept himself into uh, the environment, um, Richard has pretty much accepted everything and is doing what it takes to survive. One of the things that they do have on the campus, um, they have horses. And so Isaiah resists uh, getting a horse as part of his scholarship. However, Richard, who's another African-American student, decides that he wants to uh, take a horse. Uh, and so uh, one of the things they disagree with, one of their first scenes, is um, Richard decides to wear cowboy boots. And that is something that uh, Isaiah kind of laughs at because, you know, he's not going to be caught dead wearing any cowboy boots as a kid from Oakland. Oh, Black Panthers don't wear cowboy boots. That's right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that wouldn't fit at all. Yeah, but it wouldn't fit at all. Sounds so, like Richard is uh, where some 
critics might say that Richard's becoming too white. Yes, yes. And, and I think uh, that is part of Isaiah's struggle. He wants to uh, maintain his blackness, um, which, is a, you know, which is a struggle uh, that he and uh, Richard uh, attempt to try to resolve. Um, it's, it's something that Richard has already resolved in his mind. However, Isaiah is getting there, uh, and he's getting there much slower than Richard. Well, Philip, tell us how to get your book. Um, well, you can get the book on uh, at iUniverse, uh, at the website for iUniverse. Um, you can also get it through Amazon.com. You can get it uh, also at BarnesandNoble.com. Do you think there's going to be any kind of a sequel here or any other writing? Uh, I, I'm working on uh, actually uh, part, maybe a sequel. However, uh, I'm interested in doing a detective novel, uh, which is a little different from what I've done now. Uh, I've always wanted to do a, a, a detective series, um, and so that is uh, the next project. Um, however, I haven't ruled out a sequel to this uh, given uh, how the book ends. Well, we appreciate you sharing your book with us on iUniverse Radio, Philip. Thank you. Thank you very much. That was Philip Wilhite. He is the author of his book, Surviving Chadwick. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.